previously on Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Bowles got in his car, started it up, and backed out of the parking space. Then, the bomb Adamson had planted under the car, right under the driver's seat where Bowles sat, was detonated by remote control. After onlookers and news media cleared the area, Phoenix police homicide, bomb and arson squads, and officials from the United States Treasury Department began combing the parking lot and the surrounding area for clues that would tell what kind of explosive device was used. In court testimony later, Evett remembered that Bowles told her it was his wedding anniversary. He asked her to get in touch with his wife. He gave Evett his home telephone number told her to call his wife there. Then Bowles told her something else. He said, Adamson did it. Phoenix police know Adamson well. He's a man with a criminal record, and police say he has underworld associates. Bowles might have believed he was killed because long ago he had crossed the mafia and Emprise. He didn't seem to think that his killing might have to do with the stories he wrote that cost Kemper Marley a seat on the Arizona Racing Commission. But that's the path investigators would follow. Two days after the bombing of Don Bowles's car, a man named John Adamson went into the office of his friend, an attorney named Mickey Clifton. According to Clifton, Adamson told him that he had placed the dynamite bomb under Bowles's car, and that another man, a plumber from Chandler, detonated it by remote control. After Adamson left, Clifton notified police. Yes, Adamson was Clifton's friend and sometime client, but what Adamson didn't realize was that Clifton had another loyalty. Clifton was also friends with Don Bowles. And he was friends with a police detective. All three men, Clifton, Bowles, and the detective, had children who were hearing impaired. They got to know each other. And, and kind of trust each other in, in various ways. And I think that played a little bit of a role in Mickey wanting to come forth to see somebody that he had been known separately Don Bowles get literally blown up in his car. That voice you just heard is George Weiss. He was an investigator for the Arizona Attorney General's office. In the 1990s, he was part of a team that would take a fresh look at the case. That call from Adamson's friend and attorney Mickey Clifton gave detectives a break in the case Bowles had provided the first clue by giving Adamson's name as the man he was set to meet. Clifton's information helped seal the deal. Adamson planned the bombing. Oh, John Adamson was kind of kind of a low-level thug in some ways. Very bright guy, by the way. He went to Arizona State University and uh, got his degree, and he went ahead and... Uh, um, 
uh, and was, spoke, I think, two languages, actually. Um, but he was someone who kind of mixed in with kind of a, a criminal element. Phoenix was a smaller city then, and people in various professions networked at the string of bars that lined Central Avenue. That included the criminal profession. Uh, John was one of those guys who was involved in various scams, uh, but he knew people in, in levels of a kind of authority and um, it, just doing a bunch of low-level stuff, actually, at the time. Well, I shouldn't say low-level. Uh, there was, as we learned later, he was involved with some other bombings, not of people, but of buildings and uh, some other, what I would consider, violent activity. Detectives amassed more evidence against Adamson. A man came forward and told police he went with Adamson to look in the Republic's parking lot for Don Bowles' car. That man said he and Adamson then went to a Datsun dealership and Adamson crawled underneath the same model of car that Bowles had. Eleven days after the bombing, police had compiled enough evidence to arrest John Adamson. That also happened to be the day that Bowles died. Adamson would be the first person charged in Bowles' death. His arrest began what would be a long, complicated journey through the legal system. Adamson was charged with first-degree murder. He was facing the death penalty. He saw the evidence against him mounting. Just before his murder trial began, he struck a deal with prosecutors. He would tell them what he knew about the Bulls bombing in exchange for a deal that would spare his life. I'm Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Here's the story Adamson told police to avoid first-degree murder charges. Adamson said he was approached by a businessman named Max Dunlap. Dunlap told Adamson he wanted three men killed as a favor for his friend. That friend was a liquor magnate named Kemper Marley. Uh, as Max Dunlap used to say, he was like a son. He, Max, was like a son to Kemper Marley. In episode four, we told you that Dunlap was in a coffee shop reading a story that Don Bowles had written about Marley. It was a story that cost Marley his seat on the racing commission. Dunlap had said something about how those bastards at the Republic were on old Kemp again. What John Adamson came forth to, um, to testify about was that he was approached by Max Dunlap to do, to do murders, three murders. Um, and they were three different people um, from three different walks of life. One was Don Bowles. Uh, one was um, uh, Bruce Babbitt, who was attorney general at the time. And one was Al Lazanitz, otherwise known kind of around the Capitol as King Alphonse, kind of a very colorful guy. There were three men on the hit list. The men had no obvious connection to each other. Bowles was at the top of the hit list, but it's not clear why he landed there. There was some talk that he needed to be top priority because of a story he was working on. But what that story was has never been discovered. Bowles' editor said they didn't know of any major investigations he was working on. He was simply assigned to cover the legislature. Dunlap may have been motivated by a sense of loyalty to Kemper Marley, but Adamson seemed in it solely for the $50,000 the job paid. Adamson recruited a man he knew named James Robeson to help him with the bombing. 
Robeson was a plumber in Chandler, but he'd done some unsavory work with Adamson as well. Adamson told police he and Robeson had planted explosives at one bar, and they planted some outside of an office building. Both bombings were part of an insurance fraud scheme. Here's how Adamson described the bombing of Bulls. After Bulls parked at the Hotel Clarendon, Adamson drove up to the car. He got out the bomb he and Robeson had made and used magnets to attach it under the driver's seat of Bulls' car. He then drove to the Ivanhoe Bar on Central Avenue. Robeson parked along 4th Avenue just outside the Clarendon parking lot and waited. He watched Bulls back out of the space. Then Robeson detonated the bomb with a remote-controlled trigger. Robeson went to another bar, the phone booth, called Adamson, and told him the deed was done. Now the police had the story of the bombing, they started looking at who ordered it. They had Adamson's story, that Bowles became a marked man because of the article he wrote early that year that cost Kemper Marley a seat on the racing commission. Adamson had told police that Marley was very upset at the article, more so than anyone realized. Yes, and uh, that's, that is one of the reasons that was given for tremendous angst by allegedly by Kemper Marley, that he was very upset that this was a huge embarrassment to him, uh, that he actually had to uh, resign from that appointment. And apparently, the wound ran deep. Uh, there was an attorney who met with Dunlap on the day of the bombing named Neil Roberts, um, who, has, who said that this was, I think his words were, rangeland justice. Marley denied any involvement. Dunlap, in an interview with police two weeks after the bombing, also denied Marley was involved. Police laid out their theory of the case to Dunlap. Detectives told him they had an informant. And that informant said Dunlap orchestrated the hit on the orders of someone else. If Max Dunlap is probably working for somebody else above Max Dunlap, Kemper is a good friend. No way. The theory that Bulls was killed as a possible favor to Kemper Marley was the theory presented at trial. Adamson pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and agreed to serve a 20-year prison sentence. He testified in the joint trial of Robeson and Dunlap in 1977. Both men were convicted. Both men went to prison, proclaiming their innocence. Here's Robeson, in a 1979 interview from prison, saying he'd been railroaded. The truth has nothing to do with the court proceedings. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Dunlap and Robeson appealed their convictions. Their attorneys argued they didn't get to adequately question Adamson. 
They won their appeal. Both men had their convictions thrown out. The state attorney general's office reopened the case in 1989. George Weiss was the lead investigator. He said investigators took a fresh look at the case, starting from scratch. And so there wasn't a conclusion you were trying to do. You were trying to go wherever it was. And that was pretty much my goal, actually, when I was fortunate to become the case agent with a huge team of people um, who all worked together, pro various prosecutors, various special agents, Phoenix police detectives, all working together to say, now let's look at this all again. And what is there, that the evidence that we have? What is it that we need? Uh, what is, where does some of this evidence go to? And follow it wherever it leads. By this time, there were a lot of competing theories about the Bulls murder. Defense attorneys had pointed fingers at other people. Some journalists and amateur investigators had other theories. There were conspiracies about mishandled evidence and cover-ups. Weiss said the new investigation looked at all of it. Yeah, we even looked, we looked at those. Uh, there was a grand jury that was formed the second time that normally a state grand jury meets for six months. They actually decided to extend themselves and meet for a year and a half. And in fact, they heard some of those, what you're saying, theories or information from some of the people who came forth with that information. And despite that, they ended up bringing charges against uh, the same people that were from the first trials. Dunlap was found guilty again. He would die in prison. But a jury would find Robeson not guilty. Robeson wasn't freed, though. He was immediately arrested again by federal authorities on accusations he tried to have a witness against him killed. That witness was Adamson. After serving time for that crime, Robeson lived out his final years a free man in a remote part of Southern California. Adamson testified against both men again in their second trials. Weiss said he got to talk to Adamson a lot in preparing for the case. He does not have fond memories of the man. I don't, I don't know, I just, it was, you were facing, at least especially with John Adamson, you were facing somebody who somehow was able to not have a conscience to be all that concerned about what he was doing. And I think that's what hits you. You look in somebody's eyes, um, and there's certain things sometimes you just see. Um, and this was something that he felt he could do, and it didn't seem to really concern him that much. Adamson served his 20-year sentence, then was released in 1996. He died in 2002. Liver disease, most likely alcohol-related. And so ended the long, complicated road of the official investigation into the Bulls bombing. These three men, Adamson, Robeson, and Dunlap, would be the only men to face charges or do prison time in connection with Bulls' murder. Investigators were never able to bring charges against anyone else involved. That includes Kemper Marley, the man who supposedly ordered the hit. 
It's likely not the scenario Bowles imagined while he was laying on the asphalt after the bombing. He did mention the name of Adamson, the sleazeball he was supposed to meet at the Clarendon. But he also told witnesses about the Mafia and Emprise. Emprise, the company that was his nemesis for years. It was the company he felt went on the attack against him. Authorities took a look at Emprise after the bombing to see if there was any connection. Congressman Sam Steiger told reporters that he had called the police after the bombing to discuss Emprise. But Steiger said that Emprise was likely not involved in the death of Bowles. Steiger said he told police that Emprise would rather do what they do with lawyers and PR men, not muscle. That summer, Bowles had been scheduled to attend the Conference of Investigative Reporters and Editors, otherwise known as IRE. It was a new organization formed by reporters to share techniques, swap stories, and form friendships. At that year's conference, attendees decided on a plan to respond to the Bowles bombing. They would descend on Phoenix. They got help from a University of Arizona student who was writing a thesis on organized crime as part of his master's degree. That student was George Weiss, the man who would later investigate the Bulls murder for the Attorney General's office. As a student, Weiss jumped at the chance to join the reporting project. Well, the goal was not to solve the Bulls murder. It was something that was more important for the future of journalism. And, and that was to basically produce an insurance policy for reporters. And the idea was we are gonna to come together to carry on Don's work. 40 of us are gonna come in town, or however more we are gonna eventually get, and basically say, if you hurt or kill one reporter, 40 more will come to take his place. And the idea is it's gonna be more trouble than it's worth to hurt a reporter. That was the purpose. It would come to be known as the Arizona Project. The reporters set up in the Adams Hotel in downtown Phoenix. They used Bulls' old stories as a roadmap and started looking into corruption in Arizona. Their working hypothesis, as laid out in a memo sent to editors, was this. Bulls was not just killed by a group of men. He was killed because there was an arrogance endemic among a certain criminal element in Arizona. People felt they could have conflicts of interest, partake in corruption and crime without fear of punishment. We worked around the clock. Uh, we lived and breathed at the Adam, what was then the Adams Hotel, um, watching ourselves, being careful of things, uh, digging up sources, um, and produced 23 days of stories, uh, two stories every day. The IRE report touched on all manner of subjects. Land fraud, possible mafia connections to sports, and restaurants. Sort of like Bulls' own Menace Within series from 1970. And that's part of the reason the Republic eventually decided not to run the IRE report. The paper said most of it was old and had been reported before. Other parts of it, editors thought, weren't solid enough. That didn't make sense to those involved in the project, after all, Republic reporters, writers, and editors had worked on it. 
and everyone was disappointed. This was Don Bowles' newspaper. They were part of the team. Ask questions anytime. There was no indication of any problems. They helped write the stories. They helped reported the stories. It was really sad and disappointing. The Republic wasn't alone. The New York Times didn't run it. Neither did the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, or the Washington Post. The stories didn't result in much in the way of official investigations. There were libel suits from some of the people named in the project. Still, Weiss said the project was a success. The idea was to, like I said, to follow up things that Don Bowles had touched on or worked on or to show also and why was there an atmosphere in Arizona that would allow a reporter to get killed? What, what would people f were thinking that said, I can do this, I can get away with this? And, and that what produced that atmosphere? And that was part of what IRE was trying to show. And I think they did that very well. Although the IRE report intended to look at the corruption Bulls had investigated, the reporters did not look into the Greyhound racing industry. Not the owners of the tracks, the Funk family, or Emprise, the out-of-state company Bulls thought was linked to the Mafia. The wiretapping of Bulls in 1970 did not merit any mention. The story that haunted Bulls didn't seem to haunt anyone else. My producer, Taylor Seeley, and I went to visit Rosalie. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> In the months after Don Bowles' death, there were memorials and speeches and honors for him. But Rosalie said she came to dread the invitations. Yeah, I did, because I was still trying to deal with it. Years, years and years and years, and, I, and here today, 40-some years later, I'm still not dealing well with it. She did attend the University of Arizona ceremony in January 1977. Bowles was given the annual award from the journalism school there. Rosalie accepted the plaque, but didn't speak. The speaker instead was Bowles' former boss, J. Edward Murray. In his speech, he lamented that Bowles' work had so little impact. Murray said Bowles' reporting was, quote, all but ignored by the general public, politicians, and law enforcement. That's how former Republic columnist Paul Dean saw it, too. He said Bowles wasn't necessarily burned out on doing the work, but he was burned out that his work didn't lead to any meaningful change. He was getting burned out by the fact that he was indeed producing all these great exposés of the shenanigans going on in Phoenix, and nothing happened. And I think he got very frustrated by that and thought, maybe the public didn't care, and if the public didn't care, why should he? Bill Meek, a reporter who used to work alongside Bowles, also noticed that Bowles was frustrated. But he said that Bowles was frustrated with his job. Bowles had felt that way since being moved off the racing beat, off investigative reporting. Meek said the word he heard was that the publisher, Eugene Pulliam, said he was tired of getting sued. The idea was to keep Bowles busy, 
but to keep him away from the sorts of investigations that stirred up trouble. Meek stayed close to Bulls even after Meek left the paper. The two had lunch a few days before the bombing. And at lunch, Don complained to me about the treatment he was getting at the Republic, about the orders he had gotten about um, the Funks and the Emprise and stuff like that. You know, I mean, he was just complaining bitterly about the way he was being treated. And that was really what it had boiled down to for him. Rosalie Bowles also said that Don felt he no longer had the support from his employer, the Arizona Republic. That for all the platitudes his editors would deliver upon his death, they didn't let him pursue the stories he wanted in the last months of his life. Don felt that the paper wasn't supporting him. They wouldn't publish a lot of the stuff that he was writing. She told us it got so bad that Bowles was thinking about moving to Tucson. He wanted to take a job with the Arizona Daily Star. And uh, I didn't know specifically, but he, he felt th- that he, his time was going to be limited at the paper. We were considering a move to Tucson. That was something I had never heard before. And of all the people I interviewed about Bulls, it was something no one else seemed to know. Only his wife knew that in the last year of his life, Don Bulls was actually thinking of leaving the Arizona Republic. At the time of Bulls' death, Sam Steiger, the congressman who worked with Bulls to expose mafia connections to the Greyhound racing industry, was running for a U.S. Senate seat. He lost. Steiger never made it back to Congress. He stayed in Prescott. He was briefly mayor there. He died in 2012. Sam Steiger, a five-term Republican congressman from Arizona, passed away September 26 at the age of 83. Dom Frasca died in 1980 in New Jersey. He never got back into journalism after leaving the Republic. He worked for a congressman for a while, Then he ran a liquor store and restaurant. And no, it was never quite clear if he was tied into the mob. Even after he left the paper, Don Bowles kept poking around into it. Here he is in 1972, asking an FBI official if he had ever heard of Frasca's ties to the mob. What do you know about a guy named Gus Frasca? He's supposed to be a capitalist seaman, a banana remnants. I know the name, I have to check my files to give you any more information. Mm We're, uh, we're concerned about it because a reporter by the name of Dom Vraska showed up out here and got us in all kinds of trouble. The FBI guy told Don the two were related. Oh, be a son of a <laughs> Jesus Christ. You know, we had him working on a mafia series here. And yeah, I, I was doing it with him and I was getting peculiar feelings. Uh, Dom Frasca had many interesting relatives. We reached out to his family in New Jersey. His widow wasn't too thrilled to talk to us. His daughter, Patricia, was a little more willing. She said she always wondered about her father and some of her uncles. The way she put it, he seemed to live his life in two worlds. He was a crusading investigative reporter and a public servant. But he was also someone who seemed to like the fact he had relatives in the mob who at times could make life easier for him. It was always like he had his hand in two pies, you know, trying to ride two horses with one butt. 
Patricia told us she remembered the FBI coming to her home to investigate her father. Dom Frasca died shortly after that. Heart issues. We asked the FBI for any files they had on Dom Frasca. They told us none exist. George Johnson, the man who told Bowles he had been wiretapped, went on to become a major developer. The Johnson Ranch development near Queen Creek was built on his land. He also ran a utility company that served customers in that area east of Phoenix, or, according to the state, didn't serve those customers. Tonight, frustrations pouring out of Santan Valley, where residents say their water was turned off this week without notice. Johnson Utilities got in all sorts of trouble with the state of Arizona. In 2018, the state took over Johnson Utilities, saying it left customers without water that summer. It was one in a string of legal troubles and investigations for Johnson. Accused of hiking our rates to benefit themselves. A federal indictment just coming down against the owner of the embattled Johnson Utilities Company and a former corporation commissioner. That includes a strange allegation that involved Johnson and the deaths of some endangered sheep on land he was trying to develop. The Republic has chronicled all these investigations, and as you can imagine, that coverage has not made Johnson happy. He has long refused to speak with the Republic, including for this podcast. We tried. We asked his public relations person if Johnson would care to revisit the story. The time he stood alongside a reporter. The time he stood with the Republic, even turning on his powerful friends. But Johnson turned us down. Brad Funk died in 1990. His brother stayed in the Greyhound racing game for a while, but the Funk family doesn't make headlines anymore. Steadily, the dog racing industry lost its appeal. And it had competition. No longer was it the only form of gambling around. There was the state lottery, scratch-off tickets, powerball drawings, and then the tribal casinos. A night at the dog track didn't hold the appeal it once did. The Phoenix Greyhound Park still stands. It's right on Washington Street in East Phoenix. The light rail line runs past it. And the sign still features the silhouette of a racing greyhound. But the track closed in 2009. It was home to a dinner theater for a while. These days, the only activity at the site is a swap meet. We're here at what was Phoenix Greyhound Park. It's uh, a park and swap now. But the park grandstand and buildings and offices are still here and even after at least a decade of no racing almost this is a it's pretty well preserved uh the building at least where the dog track is is just grass and bushes and and weeds almost like you'd see uh in a driving just outside the city of phoenix uh just untamed desert like like nature took it back. Empress, the company Bulls investigated for its mafia ties, is still around. After the death of its founder, Louis Jacobs, the company reinvented itself. It changed its name to Delaware North. And the new CEO, a son of Jacobs, vowed to clean house. Delaware North has become a major player in the concessions and sports industry. It owns TD Garden in Boston, 
home of the Bruins and Celtics. He never missed a home game or a chance to feast on the team's signature dish. Delaware North delivers millions of moments like these every year. And Delaware North runs concessions in lots of major sports venues, including MetLife Stadium in New York and Wembley Stadium in London. They also run concession stands in some not-so-major venues, like Park and Swap, on the side of the old Phoenix Greyhound Park. If you buy a soda there, that money is going to Delaware North, the company formerly known as Emprise. Then there's Kemper Marley. Marley was never charged with any crime in connection with Bowles' death. Police could never prove he ordered the bombing. But Marley did get a pretty harsh media trial. That theory, that Marley wanted Bowles dead, was repeated again and again in the press. It followed him through the rest of his life. After he died in 1990, Marley's name would eventually stand for something else. He had started a foundation, the Kemper and Ethel Marley Foundation. Arizona Memories from the 50s was made possible by the Kemper and Ethel Marley Foundation. And it would make major donations around the state. A gallery at the Phoenix Art Museum is called the Marley Gallery. Agriculture classes at the University of Arizona are held in the Marley Building. The Marley family also donated to the Arizona Historical Society, which proved to be a problem. In 1996, at the end of all the trials, Phoenix police were ready to release Bowles' car to the family. It had been held in an evidence lot. The family wanted to donate the car for display at the newly built Arizona Historical Society Museum in Tempe. Then they found out the car would be displayed outside the Marley Center. Bowles' son told the Republic at the time he'd rather the car be destroyed than displayed there. The car ended up at the museum, the Museum About Journalism in Washington, D.C. But the museum is closing. Lack of interest. The next home for Bowles' car is uncertain. Rosalie told us she hoped the car found a nice home somewhere, a place where the public could still see it and remember. So did Bowles' friend, Paul Dean, the former Republic columnist. He said the car serves as a reminder of the sacrifices that journalists make. We do a job and we do a job. Why do we do it? Because we're curious and we want to find out stuff about everything and everybody. Uh, so I don't, you know, put us on a pedestal. But at the same time, I think the public, and particularly in these days when we're being ridiculed by the President of the United States, that the public needs to be reminded of the uh, enormous sacrifice made by many, not dozens, hundreds of journalists around this world. The quaint small city Don Bowles lived in eventually grew into a metropolis. It continued to grow, just like the old Republic publisher Eugene Pulliam wanted. It is no longer a cow town, but one of the largest cities in the U.S. Maricopa County once again topping the list as the fastest growing county in America. In fact, we're now the fourth largest county in the whole country.
the city evolved alongside its booming population. Ivanhoe and other seedy spots along Central Avenue closed. You can still get a great martini at Durant's, but the shadowy atmosphere is more nostalgia than reality. Attorneys now go in for happy hour, not a boozy afternoon. The Clarendon Hotel changed its name after the bombing. Understandable. Maybe tourists didn't want to stay at such a notorious place. But in 2004, a new owner decided to rehabilitate the property. He made it a boutique hotel and restored the name. It was the Clarendon Hotel again. He put a bust of bowls in the lobby and a plaque that told the story. It became the only visible marker in the city to the crime. Bowles' picture hangs in the Arizona Republic newsroom. I've seen it every day. Though in the last few months, as I've been reporting this story, I've seen it with new eyes. I've heard his voice now. After listening to hours of his phone calls, I feel like I've gotten to know him a little. I understand the work he did. Operator, uh, tell him that Judy Rooney just called down there and Senator Goldwater's waiting for a call from me, uh, she said. How tenacious he was. How dogged, how he got people to talk. Uh, it's much to your advantage to, to sit down and, and give us a kind of a full story on when they came in and, and what the circumstances were. Even his sense of humor. Okay, I'm, uh, I got a crew cut and um, I wear glasses, I'm about six feet tall, and handsome as a devil. Well, that's we're both the same, but we have a crew cut. Okay. <laughs> and how he didn't expect his life would end while he was still in his 40s. Monuments and cemeteries is my business. If you want to die, I'll get it to you. <laughs> no, sir. I, I don't care to right now. I'm only 42, and I think I'll stick around a while. Bowles kept much of his work life away from Rosalie, he never told her how scared he was. He never told her, for example, that he used to check under his car for bombs. That was a detail Rosalie found out after he died. And that caused some unexpected emotions in her, like anger. I didn't know this, but I found out later that he always checked the car. But he didn't that day. And I almost got mad about that because he checked it every time, but that day he didn't look under the car. Meeting a man whom he called a sleazeball to me. So I, I don't know what he wrote about that, but about him before. But he, he told me he was a real sleazeball, and then he's going to meet him at the hotel, and then he goes out to the lot, he doesn't show up, and he doesn't check under the car. In the years that passed, Rosalie remarried, lived in Europe for a while, returned to the United States, divorced, and settled in the American South. More than 40 years had passed since Don Bowles had died. But when we walked into her house, I immediately noticed something. Uh, 
because uh, I see the it was one of the first things I saw was this photo. This was the photo you said you liked the best of, of Don. It was on her living room wall, right by the front door. It was a photo of Don Bowles. It's the black and white photo. He still has his flat top in this one, which I love. She still had his photo on her wall. All these years later, she can't forget. I'm, I miss physically having him around, you know? It's, we had so much fun doing things, and I haven't felt that way since. She showed her hand where she wears a memento of Don. But I still have his wedding ring. And I still have, he gave me this on our wedding day. It's a pendant she wears around her neck. Oh, this is um, a heart with a small diamond in it that Don gave me on our wedding day. I never take it off. We asked Rosalie what she thought her late husband's legacy is. His legacy would be to persevere in getting the truth. Until they say, don't write them kind of stories no more, I'm going to be right in there. Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist, was reported and voiced by me, Richard Rellis. Taylor Seeley is the lead producer. Katie O'Connell is the executive producer. Script supervision came from news editor Sean McKinnon and news director Josh Susong. Web design for this project came from John Paul McDonald. Social media was led by Danielle Woodward with help from Grace Palmieri. Special thanks to Kayla White, Maritza Dominguez, and Will Flanagan for their support. Kim Bowie provided research assistance. Cassette repair and digitization by on-site video in Tempe. Additional audio, courtesy of the Arizona State Library Archives. John Adams is our Senior Director for Storytelling and Innovation. Greg Burton is our Executive Editor. To find out more on the mafia, gambling, and land fraud in Arizona after Don Bowles died, go to donbowles.azcentral.com.